Good morning, River. Welcome, everyone. We're about to start our service today, and today we are going to start with Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2. And this says that there's two ways. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. This psalm really spoke to me, and during this pandemic, I've been so grateful. Most of these psalms were written by David, and you know, he had this wisdom that instead of tuning in first thing in the morning to all that was going on around him and what the media might be feeding him or the politicians or the fear of the world, he tuned into God. And with that, he found happiness. So it's really important that we develop these spiritual practices to tune into the Lord so that we can be in tune with the things he wants us to see, not always the ways of the world. So let's pray for a moment. Dear Lord, thank you for this community. Thank you for your word. Thank you for pointing out the things that you need us to see, that you want to inspire us with and motivate us with and empower us with. Thank you for being a God that has a personal relationship with us and wants to meet with us every day. You're there for us, even when we feel alone, even when we feel empty, even when we feel deprived. And during this pandemic, I've been so grateful for that. So thank you, Lord. Today, speak with my brothers and sisters here. And Lord, we just look up to you. We ask your word to be clear here so we can all hear. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful morning to worship God. I'm going to invite you to sing this song with me.
Special, uh, who's gonna be sharing the the, the word? Uh, it's Jordan. I know you know him. <laughs> Amen. Well, good morning, River of the Valley. It is so good to be back in your midst today. Uh, this is a special day for many reasons. First, it's the first time I've actually been to River of the Valley. Last time I was here, this was still Canoga Park Presbyterian. So it's great. I can't believe the way the sanctuary looks. Oh my goodness, you guys. The new floor, the chairs, it looks incredible. So this is really fun. Secondly, this is the first time since this whole crazy pandemic that I've been in a church. This is the first time in a year that I've been able to celebrate with God's people in the house of God. And so it is great to be back in your midst. And if just for the little cherry on top, today is also my birthday. And so there is no place else I would rather spend my 32nd birthday than with you all um, in this place. So thank you for having me. Um, when Jonathan texted me and invited me to come preach, I was thrilled. But I was, un when I heard that he was recovering from surgery, I was, you know, I want him to feel as, you know, healthy and strong as possible. So before we begin, I'd just love to say a great, quick little prayer for Pastor Jonathan. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Pastor Jonathan and for the way that he has faithfully served your church and your people. And we lift him up to you, Lord, and pray for a quick and full recovery in his ankle that the surgery would make him stronger and that he would look back on it and feel so grateful that he's been restored by your power and the power of the doctors. And we put him into your hands in Jesus' name, amen. Yes, so Jonathan shared with me that you guys are going through uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And this is a great book. It's one of Paul's major letters and it's especially relevant to Christians who live in big, metropolitan areas like LA County because Corinth and LA share a lot in common. For example, both of them were cultural centers where people from all around the world come to these big cities to start a new life, to try their fame and fortune. They didn't have the movie industry back in ancient Corinth, but they had, you know, their different um, temples and all kinds of merchants there. It was, a, it was a commercial hub, many ways like LA is. And the other thing that's very similar between Corinth and Los Angeles is both cities were known for being very liberal, very open-minded uh, to a lot of different things, especially when it came to things like sexuality. For example, in the ancient world, saying somebody was a Corinthian would have had a similar connotation as saying somebody's from West Hollywood. So it's, it was that kind of city in the same way that LA is this kind of city. And I think perhaps the thing that unites big metropolitan cities, no matter where they are or what time they're in, you know, the people often like to talk about love. You know, you hear, I hear all the time in social media, people saying, we just need to, we need more love. There needs to be more love in the world. 
And that's very true. But the question is, is what do you mean by love? Because certainly the world's definition of love is often very different from God's definition. And that's why this particular chapter in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, is so important. Because in this chapter, Paul outlines very specifically what Christian love looks like. For example, when the world talks about love, they might be referring to, you know, letting somebody get their way all the time, giving people what they want. That, oh, you're loving them if you don't stand up to them or tell them no. But that's not Christian love. But what is Christian love? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at through these past couple sermons, and this whole series is all about understanding what is Christian love specifically. And the thing that's really amazing about Christian love is that it's so big. So for instance, I'm sure many of you, if you've been to any weddings, you've probably heard the preacher read 1 Corinthians 13, and it's kind of known as like a wedding chapter. And it, it, it's a great, beautiful description. I'm glad that it's read at weddings. But if we only think of it as something that applies to a wedding day or, you know, people in church, we're really limiting what Paul's really talking about. Because Christian love is known of, above all else that it is extended to people who are difficult to love. You know, it's easy to love your spouse sometimes. It's easy to love people who are, you know, and that you care about. But what about those people that are really hard to love? That guy who cuts you off on the freeway, the people who are disrespectful or rude to you, the people who aren't grateful for the things that you do to them, that it's like a chore to have to deal with these people. Jesus says, even unbelievers love those who love them. But what makes somebody a disciple of God is being able to extend that kind of love to a rival, to somebody you don't particularly like, to somebody who maybe even could be described as your enemy. That's Christian love. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is how can we live out Christian love to those people who are difficult to love? And so to give you kind of a illustration of what I mean, um, our verse for today is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. And in it, Paul writes, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And so we're just going to camp out on this one verse this morning because it seems pretty straightforward on first read, but I think you'll find that there's actually many layers of meaning to this. And what stood out to me the first time I read this verse is when Paul says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And I read that and I was like, duh, like, come on, we're Christians here. Why would we ever rejoice in wrongdoing, Paul? Like, you know, this seems pretty basic. You know, he's not writing this to outsiders. He's writing this to the church. And, you know, as church people, we like to think, oh, no, I would never rejoice in wrongdoing. Heaven forbid. That's why would anyone do that? Um, but as I thought about it a little bit more, I was like, why would anyone rejoice in wrongdoing? And then I started to realize it's, you know, when wrongdoing happens to people that I don't like, I might be tempted to rejoice in that. When wrongdoing happens to people who I feel like maybe they should receive some wrongdoing, they may need to be knocked down a couple pegs, 
I might be tempted to rejoice in that. And to give kind of a, an example of what this might look like is, you know, maybe some of you are sports fans. If you are, you know, if you're not, you can at least appreciate some people like to follow a sports team. And one of the fun parts of being a sports fan is, you know, there's rivalries, right? So like, if you root for UCLA, you can't wait for them to try to beat USC, although you have to kind of pray really hard. It, sometimes God doesn't answer those prayers, but it's okay. Um, or if you're a Dodger fan, you can't wait for them to beat the Giants. And if you're a Laker fan, you better hope that the Celtics get blown out. There's these special relationships between teams where it's like, oh, they're the bad guys. We really want to beat them. And so imagine you're watching a game with your favorite team and they're playing the rivals and the ref makes like a really bad call. Like he calls a penalty on the other team and it's like, no, that's totally off base. But if it's on the other team, are you going to be really upset about that bad call? Or would you maybe be tempted to say, all right, now we're going to really take advantage of this. We're going to get ahead. I know, I know that I might be tempted to feel that way. And it's exactly in these moments when it's people we don't like, people whose opinions we just can't stand or whatever it is. When wrongdoing happens to somebody like that, there's a temptation to rejoice in it. Um, you know, the Germans have a word for this specific kind of feeling. They call it schadenfreude, which could be literally translated as shade joy or dark joy. And you know, you gotta love the Germans, they have a word for everything. This idea that you can have this dark joy when something bad happens to somebody that you don't like or you know, that you have a difference of opinion in. And I use this sports analogy to kind of begin this discussion because it's very inoffensive, it's something that's kind of fun, you know, sports. But maybe you're not a sports fan or maybe you want to see how this verse applies to something that's a little bit more emotionally charged or difficult. Well, I want us to think back on this past year of 2020, which was a tumultuous year for so many reasons. And there were times where I felt like there was a lot of rejoicing in what seemed to be wrongdoing. And this is something that applied to everybody, uh, myself included. And specifically what I'm thinking about is last summer, we all remember it was a time of upheaval as people took to the streets, sometimes peacefully, sometimes violently, to make their voice heard about racial injustice in the United States. And while all this was going on, there were kind of two big voices or two sides that I heard mainly in the media or on social media. On one side, there were people who were saying, you know, it's about time that the people stand up for themselves and make their voices heard. And if they end up breaking the law, well, you know, it's, there's more important things than, than that. That's what one side seemed to be saying. And the other side seemed to be saying, this is crime, this is violence, this is making things worse. Why don't the authorities step in and do something? And it was a very traumatic and difficult couple months and we're still kind of dealing with the fallout from all of that. But then 2020 didn't give up, it didn't stop, the craziness didn't end. Only a few months later there was another upheaval after the presidential election and there were people who actually stormed onto the Capitol building, took it over, and that was a crazy moment as well. And the thing that was so crazy about it 
is it seemed like those two voices that I had heard with the issues over the summer, now they had switched sides. The same people who were saying, oh, now the people are making themselves heard and standing up, those people seem to be saying, where are the authorities? You know, why aren't the cops, you know, shutting this down? The people who were saying, oh, we need to defund the police are now saying, why aren't the police taking care of this? And then on the other side, the people who are like, we needed to shut down these, you know, violence and rioters. We need to have the authorities come in. Now those are the ones saying, no, the people are making themselves heard and we're standing up and all this. And it just seemed to me like the idea of what was wrong or what was right depended more upon your personal affiliation as opposed to a universal standard. The people who were on one side of the spectrum were rejoicing when there was um, uh, upheaval in the streets. And then when the other side did the same thing, then the other side started to rejoicing. And there was a lot of rejoicing in this kind of wrongdoing, in this idea that you know, we can break the law and that we can you know, make ourselves heard. Yes, there are times to stand up for truth and for justice, but we do it in a way that is uplifting. We do it in a way that brings people together and it's wrong to burn down a street of small businesses and express anger that way, just like it is also wrong to storm into the Capitol building and do that. Both sides, so to speak, were doing things that were across the line, whereas God's people, we have to call out both sides and realize that we don't rejoice in wrongdoing no matter who does it. We don't have a tribal affiliation, and that's a huge point I want to drive home, that human beings absent the love of God, we're naturally tribal creatures, and we want our tribe, our people who are like us and have the same opinions, we want our team to, to get ahead, and we want the other team to fall behind. But when Paul talks about not rejoicing in wrongdoing, that means looking at the other side, that other tribe, those people who are very different, and not rejoicing when they do something, um, when something wrong happens to them, and not rejoicing when we do something that gives us an advantage over those people. The idea of not rejoicing in wrongdoing is all about seeing that right and wrong is not dependent on your tribal affiliation or who is, what team you're on but it's about what God has revealed to us in his word. And that's the second thing I want us to point out about this passage, or this verse from 1 Corinthians. It's really interesting that Paul writes, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And it's interesting because the obvious contrast between rejoicing in wrongdoing would be rejoicing in right doing, right? Doing the right thing. But that's not what Paul writes here. He says the contrast between rejoicing and wrongdoing is rejoicing in the truth. And the reason Paul draws the contrast that way is because this idea of rejoicing and wrongdoing, it's based on that lie. The lie that it's a tribal affiliation or that it's a relative definition of right and wrong. God's word gives us a universal law that applies to everyone, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on, regardless of, you know, where your station in life is. God's rules are the same 
for everyone. But when we fall into the trap of rejoicing in wrongdoing, what we're really doing is believing that, okay, it's okay for my team to do this, but it's not okay for your team to do this. Or it's okay for the people that I believe are right to do these kinds of things, and that's why I rejoice when we do it, but I get upset when your team or your tribe does it. That's the lie. The truth is that if it's wrong for one tribe, it's wrong for every tribe. And that's why we don't rejoice in wrongdoing, even when it might benefit our personal affiliations. And here's the other thing. It's not just a tribal collective issue. This goes to our individual personal lives as well. If you really take a moment and think, have there been times in your life that you've gotten away with something that you weren't supposed to do and you were relieved or rejoicing in that? I know for me, it's certainly been true. There have been times where, you know, maybe I looked at somebody else's homework when I was, you know, a student and I got away with it and the teacher didn't, you know, give me detention or anything like that and I rejoiced in that wrongdoing. Or maybe, you know, you fudged some numbers on a, a project or you made up an excuse on why you weren't at work or something like that and, it, and, it, and those lies were believed and part of you is, oh, I'm glad I got away with that. I'm rejoicing in that wrongdoing. And so there's this temptation even more than the tribal affiliations or things, but in our own personal individual lives that we might be drawn to rejoice in wrongdoing. And again, it's based off this lie, this lie that, oh, if I get away with it or if I escape punishment from doing something wrong, that that's good because we're thinking of it in human terms. The human terms of, oh, I just don't want to have negative experience. I don't want to be punished for these things. But again, the truth is that God tells us the wages of sin is death. And even if we escape, you know, the people that we're trying to fool, even if we avoid judgment on earth, God sees all things, and we won't be able to fool the Lord. And so we want to live righteously and not fall into the trap of thinking that we can get away with wrongdoing and rejoicing in the fact that we trick people or that we are escaping the judgment that, that we might deserve. And then to bring it all home, the beautiful, beautiful truth that we really rejoice in is Jesus Christ himself and his resurrection that because of what he's done for us on the cross, that we don't have to fear the Lord's judgment, that even though we have done wrong, even though we are all sinners, that through Christ and his resurrection, we are forgiven, that we are redeemed, that we can go forth into the world and share that message of forgiveness and redemption and new life to people who are so hungry for it, they don't even know what it is that they're missing, but they're missing something. And that's what makes people riot in the streets or storm the Capitol building, is them trying to fill up a sense of meaning in their lives that can only come from Jesus Christ. And as God's people, let us leave this morning feeling renewed and reinvigorated to share that message of hope and reconciliation with a world that needs it so desperately. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. 
We thank you for your truth in Jesus Christ that shows us that there is no wrongdoing that cannot be made right through your power, Lord. And I pray that each one of us would be convicted of the times that we've rejoiced in our own wrongdoing or in the wrongdoing of our tribe or our team or our affiliation, whatever it is. And I pray, Lord, that you would destroy the lie that makes us think that it's okay when we do it and it's not okay when somebody else does it. I pray, Lord, that we would apply one rule, one law to all people, no matter what they look like, no matter what opinions they might have. I pray, Lord, that we would all be in submission to your word and your law. And so I pray, Father, that you would remind us of your goodness, that you would remind us of your universal truth that applies to all nations, and that we would be bearers and witnesses and ambassadors of your kingdom to a world that needs it so desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.